The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. They are based on the Center for Disease Control designation. And so back in 2014, the CDC said, these are the top three genomic applications. They call them tier one because they had the most evidence behind them. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call discusses a paper titled Population Genomic Screening for Three Common Hereditary Conditions, a Cost-Effective Analysis from the Annals of Internal Medicine. Joining us on the podcast are two of the authors, Dr. Greg Guzakis, who's a senior research scientist and a staff in the Department of Pharmacy at University of Washington, and Dr. Josh Peterson, who is Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Medicine in the School of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Director of the Center for Precision Medicine and the Vice President for Personalized Medicine. We hope that you enjoy and learn from this podcast. Josh and Greg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I was really attracted to your article on population genomic screening because I realized that this is a new frontier for preventive medicine. And not knowing much about it, knowing the areas that you were studying, but not having any concept of the costs of this and whether or not it might be a worthwhile expenditure for either the individual or for an insurance company, I love the approach you took. And so what I'd like to do is go through some of the key things about this study. And the first is, if y'all could explain why you decided to study these particular gene variants and how important they are in prevention. First of all, thanks for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the program. You know, this study is, is about three hereditary conditions, and each of those conditions have multiple genes that are associated with them. Um, so it's hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, Lynch syndrome, with which of course you know can cause colorectal cancer among other cancers, and familial hypercholesterolemia. These are you know conditions that are well known. They're sort of the top three for for causing disease and being high risk. And just as an example, you know the two best known breast cancer genes you know give individuals somewhere in the range of a sixty to eighty percent lifetime risk of breast cancer. Lynch syndrome patients have an 80% uh, chance of developing colorectal cancer. So these are very high risk conditions. And the key, you know, the key criteria that we had to studying them is the preventability and that there are guidelines, evidence-based guidelines to managing these risks over 
um, your patient's lifetimes. And as you, you know, all the guidelines have sort of certain things in common, starting screening early in life, uh, usually adding, you know, in some cases, you know, other imaging modalities like a breast MRI for breast cancer screening. And I, I guess the other thing I should say is we actually didn't pick these conditions necessarily ourselves because they are based on the Center for Disease Control designation. And so back in 2014, the CDC said, you know, look, these are the top three genomic applications, and they called them tier one because they felt like they had the most evidence behind them. Well, that's great. And having done decision analysis and cost effectiveness analysis early in my career, I was fairly comfortable with the concept of Markov modeling. But when I talk to my colleagues and I say Markov, uh, their eyes sort of wide over <laughs> and uh, they're not really sure what's going on. And if you could do a simple description of the concept of Markov modeling and why it's so important in this topic. Uh, sure, I'll take that one, Bob. Um, so I'll try to keep it simple, but you know, in Mar Markov models are, are pretty common in, in health economics, and we didn't really invent or reinvent any wheels here. We're just using uh, the same approach that's been used in, in many other disease areas over the years. Uh, I'll note that 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 name comes from the uh, 19th century Russian mathematician Andrei Markov, and he invented this this concept known as the Markov chain, uh, and it's used in a lot of real world processes and, and various industries uh, for a lot of different reasons. But you know, we in health economics use that process to model disease and what happens to patients with these, with these diseases over time. So first we conceptualize the states of health that represent the stages of a particular condition and how those patients would transition among those health states as they would in real life. So let's, for a generic example, let's imagine that there's a hypothetical disease with four health states. There's healthy, thick, thicker, and dead. And then from that, let's infer that the, the healthy state has the lowest mortality, it's, but it's also got uh, the highest quality of life and it's the least expensive in terms of healthcare costs, uh, if there are any healthcare costs at all for that healthy state. Now the sick health state has increased mortality, uh, worse quality of life and is more expensive. And then the sicker health state is even worse than that. And over time, people will become sick, some will get sicker, and everyone will ultimately die from either the disease or age-based background mortality. And so once we have that conceptualized, what we're doing is just using probabilities that we've derived from the medical literature to estimate what proportion of individuals will transition from one of these health states to another each year. And then we extrapolate those calculations over an entire lifetime. Uh, and so we'll do that independently for both the intervention arm and the no intervention arm. And so there's different sets of probabilities. You know, the probability of the intervention arm is typically going to be uh, for getting sick and or dying is going to be smaller than the probabilities in the no intervention arm. When you model those independently and then you sum up all the, the time spent in the health states in both arms, you'll find that the intervention arm typically has a higher overall cost because, well, the, 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 the intervention itself isn't going to be free. So that's going to increase the cost of, the, of that intervention arm. But you should also see better long-term survival, higher quality of life, and often uh, a lower uh, 
general healthcare costs compared to no intervention arm. And those are those are the metrics that we're calculating and then comparing to understand what's, you know, is that intervention worth the extra cost of, of, of paying for that intervention? And, you know, our model is, you know, is using those exact same concepts, except it's a lot bigger and there's three different conditions involved and a lot of uh, sub-interventions such as, you know, taking statins and getting your colonoscopies and things like that. But in the nutshell, the concepts are all there. It's just, you know, a bigger <laughs> than what I just described. Let me see if I can uh, simplify it even more. So we start out with a cohort of people in whom we're going to do the tests. A percentage mm-hmm. of them will be positive for each of the three conditions. Those people, the, the rest of the people are going to be the same in both groups, except for that you spent money to buy the genes. But let's say you have uh, a, a predisposition to breast cancer. Was this Markov model year by year? Yeah, we used annual model cycles. And so right. all of the probabilities moving from state to state are, you know, what's your probability within a year of going from, for instance, not having cancer to having cancer? Right. So therefore, the first year is everybody's fine. The second year, some people have cancer. The third year, some of those people have cancer, have worse cancer. Some have better because of whatever we did. And more people get cancer and more people get cured and more people don't get cured. And that's true for Lynch and for BRCA and for in heart disease for hyperlipidemias. And so what you're doing is you're adding things up and hoping that you decrease the number of people who go to the uh, disease at each time. They may have interventions that cost money, but they're less likely to have disease. Okay. Now, you have to make a lot of assumptions here. And mm-hmm. so what I'm really interested in is what are the some of the main assumptions that uh, will make sense to me, the primary care physician? You know, there's hundreds of variables in this model, but, uh, you know, so we do, it's a very complex model, partly because it's covering the three conditions. The one thing that we... I think maybe different than what many of your listeners may expect is, and this is really based on the newest genetic studies, is that, you know, this risk across the three conditions is not very much tied to your ancestry as we once thought. Um, So there are very small ancestries that might have a a bigger percentage, but these risks actually are across most uh, global ancestries. And sometimes we have a little less certainty about how much they affect different ancestries, but I think it's that's one new thing was just it's not uh, only a particular ancestry that's affected. And then, you know, I think the most consequential assumptions, I think, have to do with the screening test itself. And one of those was the assumption that it would be a relatively inexpensive test cost of $250. Uh, and the other one being that this is a, a test that is only sequencing for these, the known genes for these three you know, really high evidence genetic conditions. Uh, for that test cost, you know, the higher that test cost goes, the less cost effective screening is going to become because, you know, if you're if you're testing everybody in the every adult in the U.S. and only one point five percent of people of the people who are tested actually have one of these conditions, well, that you know that cost of doing business just gets just gets higher. And, you know, say if you get up to $500 for a test cost, that can overwhelm 
any of the health gains and cost savings that we're getting by preventing disease or preventing mortality in those people who could benefit from the the test. We we take a number of people and some of them may be worried and they're probably not in this group because they're, they're my mother got breast cancer at age 40 and now I'm 30 and I'm worried or might might have already been tested. Uh, so that's one thing. The next thing is whose perspective is this from? Is this from, is it worth me paying $250 or is it worth my insurance company or society is at large? And that's always a question in cost effectiveness analysis. And I guess the last thing that I'm concerned about is when you find a positive, how do you use a positive for first degree relatives or second degree relatives? And is that part of the model? Because that is a complex model. So we used a, a payer perspective in our main analysis, and that's just focused on direct medical costs only. And so, yeah, those are the ones that your insurer is paying for. We did include a scenario analysis with a societal perspective, and that included uh, productivity loss among diseased individuals. So if you get sick and you can't work, what's the cost of that? Uh, we did not include any indirect or out-of-pocket costs. So anything that a patient would be paying uh, out of their own pocket is not included in the analysis. It's really just payer-focused. And did you include anything about once I find out that I'm at risk, and I have children, and and I have uh, siblings, I have first-degree cousins. Are those people involved? Because uh, I actually know someone who recently found out that they had BRCA, and that, that woman has two daughters. What's the impact on them? Yeah, that's a great question. So definitely from the outset, we wanted to include that kind of testing where you tell your first-degree family member about your condition, and then hopefully they go get tested themselves. So that's called uh, cascade testing. So you identify an individual who has a risk, and then the testing cascades to their next family member. And you know, we're, our hypothesis was this is going to be a very efficient way to identify additional people who need more preventative care. But I, there's some caveats to that, and this is based on the genetics literature. So first of all, you know, families are complicated, and you know, you may not have a connection with your biological first-degree relatives. Um, so we wanted to have some estimate of that. So actually, what we did is we took this well-known survey that basically was a large survey of people saying, "Here are the family members that I know about." And we use that to create our population, our theoretical population. So, you know, it's a realistic sort of depiction of how many, you know, siblings and and children you have. And then the other two things we know from literature is that people um, don't always want to talk about their health information with their uh, families. And so we, uh, based on literature, estimated that that was going to happen about 70% of the time. And then we also know that even if you tell someone, you tell a sibling, hey, you know, you really should go get tested, that actually doesn't happen very often as, at all. Um, and so our overall rate of successful cascade testing was only around 16% of the model. Now, of course, if you could do an intervention to really improve that, and there has been things that people have tried, you, you could actually really increase the cost effectiveness overall of doing this kind of testing. But we were pretty conservative about how we uh, we modeled that aspect. 
now we've gone through here, and as I remember uh, reading this, uh, you looked at different ages. So maybe you could give sort of a summary of the results, and then we can discuss the implications after that. What did you find? Were you surprised? And at what costs does it not make sense? I would say that we anticipated fairly early on that um, younger people were going to benefit the most. And that's a little bit obvious because, of course, these genetic diseases tend to cause early onset cancers, early uh, atherosclerotic disease of various types, cardiovascular disease and stroke. And so we knew we wanted to catch people soon enough so that you could avert that disease. And I, I, I guess we didn't know where that cutoff was going to be that upper cutoff, right? So so we we modeled 20 uh, through 60, and then it turned out right around age 40 with our with our sort of base assumptions is when it started to turn not cost effective. So ideally, from a policy perspective, you would get people tested between age 20 and 40. Now, um, if you could make the test even cheaper, you know, you could probably bump that age a little bit higher um, so that that upper bound could be a little bit movable. And I also say that, you know, there's new pediatric guidelines to test cholesterol at age nine. And so that may actually impact how, you know, what you would do with the FH testing, because you might pick up some uh, people um, even earlier than age 20. And, and I think that the overall message is, uh, I, I think, an in really interesting one. So first of all, I think this activity pairs really well with the things we're already doing. So we're already managing people's breast cancer risk and their colorectal cancer risk. That's really in our wheelhouse as internists. So this is just adding information that really helps us define a high-risk group that needs you know, a fair bit more preventative care than others. And that's one of the reasons we really wanted to get it into animals because we think uh, internists are the right audience for this. So it was cost-effective for all three tests, I assume. Yeah, so we had done some work in the last couple of years that showed that if you do the each of them independently, so you can, of course, order a test that's just for breast yeah. cancer, they're not as cost-effective, not nearly as cost-effective. So one of the features of this model was that you had to sort of combine them or bundle these conditions together, test them for them simultaneously, um, and then that gives you sort of the economy of scale of using that panel approach to genetic testing. But it, I, I think an important aspect of that is, you know, it's not the whole genome or it's not this very, very long list of genes. It really is a restricted set of genes. And as the science moves forward, we may be able to add some additional conditions to that list. But, it, you know, for right now, you know, the three conditions are really, you know, the, the ones that will give us the, sort of the most bang for the buck. You mentioned uh, $250 is the assumption. What's the rationale for that assumption? There's a couple, um, you know, vendors and other, you know, there's ways to get this testing for that cost. Um, now that said, you know, the marketplace features costs that are kind of all over the place. And so you, it's not a guarantee that, that your genetic test is going to be that, that low. And so really the message of the paper is, look, if you're going to do population screening, um, then you really have to bring costs down to that level. But we know it's feasible because it is offered um, at that price point. So now that uh, you've worked with uh, these data for a long time, and, and uh, I know that when you do something like this, you really study where the breakpoints are and, and, and make sure that it fits. 
what's your message to the listeners? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, we we know that a fair bit of this kind of testing is already going on, and sometimes it's initiated by by patients. So I, I think actually the first lesson is it, you know, it, you know, if patients are going to go get this kind of testing, it does need to be the right kind of test. It needs to be sequencing because there are different types of genetic testing out there from a reputable laboratory. And really preferably this would be through health systems so that the information can live in electronic health record or other um, records. But I think it's reasonable to do this testing. And we know we're doing it already based on family history, but I think starting to expand it to you know these, this younger population, I think is a very reasonable thing to do. That said, I think moving forward to do this more systematically, there's a, there's more research that needs to be done, and I would say there's more policy that has to be created. Um, we're sort of short of genetic counselors in the country to actually implement this right now, so we need to figure out ways to sort of quickly and effectively return this information um, without always including a genetic counselor. That may be the best approach, but we may not be able to afford to do that for every time we order this test. Um, and there may not be enough of them. So um, I think that one of the things we looked at in the model is we wanted to make sure that people who got a negative test understood that there was that that did not mean they should do anything different with their standard preventative care. They should still get all the same preventative care that they normally should get. And I guess my final question, has the U.S. Preventive Task Force taken this up, uh, looked at it in any way? And if not, do you think they should? <laughs> yeah, great question. So they, they've they not taken this particular question up. And what they have, they are looking at various forms of testing in, in people who are already known to be high risk um, for either personal family history um, and and that is, uh, we, you know, I, I think that's also indicated, but this is not a this sort of population screening is not something that they are taking up right now. I do think that they should take it up, uh, whether that may, whether that's now or a little bit in the future. I mean, you know, I, I, I think it took us a while to sort of, for example, get uh, to get colonoscopy approved. It took, I, I think, a, a fair bit of studies to do that. So we may need a few more to really convince that national body, and they may be concerned about the amount of investment and resources we have. Um, but I but I think it's, it's headed that direction. Well, Josh and Greg, thank you for uh, writing the paper and for joining us on the podcast. It's been very uh, worthwhile listening to uh, what you've done. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This new approach to preventive medicine seems promising. In this cost-effectiveness analysis, testing for breast cancer, Lynch syndrome, and hyperlipidemia appears cost-effective despite the fact that only about 1.5% of a population screened at age 30 will have one of these three uh, genomic variants. As we learn more about screening for risk factors that can be managed clinically to decrease complications and even onset of diagnoses, we will 
possibly expand this to be more than three conditions. This will require understanding genomics better and understanding what we can do with the information. This is not a settled area, but it's one of great interest that I believe will influence how we do primary care over the next uh, 10 years. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.